American United strives to serve those who serve. Ask them about their VA home loans, which offer up to 100% financing, often with no down payment required. Make an appointment to research your options. Learn more at amucu.org. Hi, this is Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. There are many life changes that can happen after divorce that make it difficult or impossible to uphold requirements of your divorce decree. The orders issued in a divorce are based on the facts presented at that time, but the circumstances used in issuing those orders can obviously change. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, we've got Funded Today. Business is business, so as much as you think you're friends with business people, and maybe you have a personal life with them. When it comes to business, treat it like a business. And when it comes to personal, treat it personal. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Zach, thanks for being on. Excited to be here, Jess. Thanks for having me. So um, you guys have done some things that not everybody has done in the crowdfunding space. Um, let's start off with uh, one of the impressive numbers. How much have you guys raised altogether for your clients? We have a cool thing on our website now, actually. If you go to funded.today, or funded.today, not funded.com, you'll see at the very top, there's a header that says, we've helped creators raise over, and today it is $54 million, but that number will update automatically. It's We didn't show all the pennies and cents. We could, but on our back end, we keep track of every single dollar raised, and that number is uh, dynamic. So, In fact, just yesterday, I was talking to a person, and it was 53, so it looks like we just barely crossed the $54 million mark sometime between yesterday and today. That's awesome. Um, so a lot of people are excited like us. You know, we raised $30,000 for our uh, helping with that undercover rescue mission we were helping. Um, and that's on- great. And that's great. That's really nothing to be ashamed about. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, but what I think is fun is today is, you know, we've got the chance to talk about a number of these uh, million and multi-million dollar campaigns. Um, to begin with, what attracted you to the crowdfunding world? I was originally a business consultant. I had sold my first company after a little bit of a craziness with a business partner. And after selling that company, I became a small business consultant. And as a small business consultant, I had the chance to bill as an attorney or an accountant, kind of on retainer by the hour. And as I did this for a couple of years, I had one client come to me and say, hey, I can't afford your hourly rate or your retainer. I'm wondering if you heard of this thing called crowdfunding. And I said, a little bit, but I've never done anything with it. Like, well, how would it be if we ran a campaign on Kickstarter and instead of paying you any money up front, we just pay you a percentage of all the money you raise for us? And at the time, I was in a pretty good financial position, and I said, okay, let's go for it. 
and probably 90 to 120 days went by and we prepared and did all the pre-launch strategy and we launched and over the next 30 days this company that had only been making a couple thousand dollars maximum on the internet before made $115,000 in 30 days and that was exciting and from there we literally had hundreds of people see this remarkable rags to riches I guess you could call a success story and suddenly wonder how they did it and that led to a lot of business and we just kept being successful until one success story led to another success story and the snowball effect definitely came into full effect and funded today essentially was born out of word of mouth advertising but with the power of the internet it spread virally it, it is crazy what a multiplier effect it can have right Oh, yeah, especially in crowdfunding because so many people – I was talking to a client yesterday called The Big Skinny. It was another wallet campaign actually, and he's a, a Harvard grad. His name's Kirill, and we were chatting. It had been I think a year and a half or so since we last chatted, but he was telling me about a guy that had contacted him yesterday. So a year and a half later, people are still wondering how did you raise this money on crowdfunding. So I, I just imagine with the hundreds – I think we've worked with 500-plus clients now. We it, Literally, we have so much business we don't know what to do with ourselves half the time. That's an enviable position. Um, <laughs> now, we were talking before getting started that, uh, you know, like I was watch watching one of, your, uh, one of your speeches recently, and obviously we, we met there at the crowdfunding conference. Um, yeah. For me, I'm fascinated by this idea of, you know, instead of having to have a rich uncle, you could just mm. be smart and do a lot of preparation to get your first million bucks in the door. Um, tell me a bit more about you know, how you've seen companies get launched and, and obviously having some of your clients, you know, leverage this rewards-based crowdfunding into, you know, being backed by Shark Tank or other investors. Um, what's kind of your view of, of how that all happens? Yeah, I love that question. So you had Joseph May of Breton on your show a couple days ago, and Joseph is a client of ours. We started with him from the very beginning. He literally had no crowdfunding experience before. This was his first campaign, and I believe he raised just over $240,000 with the help of Funded Today. And that's impressive. I mean, a quarter million dollars essentially from his first campaign. Now, how do you catapult that success? How come he didn't raise a million? Well, a quarter million is a great first raise. He didn't have to have any friends or family help back that. He didn't have to have any outside influencers, as you and I like to say, a rich uncle. And that's where I come from as well. I'm sort of a grassroots, bootstrap kind of guy in my dad is a school teacher and my mom really never worked. And so I didn't have a lot of riches either. And everything I had to do was built on hustle and hard work and networking and leveraging past success to create bigger and greater successes. And fast forward now, Joseph raised $240,000. He's raising more money now. He has a website, but I like to look at another client, Basics. And they were actually at the Utah Crowdfunding Conference as well. Basics was similar to him, but they only raised $171,000 on their first campaign with the Basics wallet. Since then, they launched another campaign and raised $400,000. They launched another campaign and raised, again, multiple six figures and, raised, and did another campaign and raised multiple six figures. And all of these campaigns are now successful businesses all under the Basics brand, raising well over six figures per month. And these guys are millionaires now, and it's been less than 18 months. And again, they didn't leverage any outside work. In fact, I still remember when Jacob came to me and they had raised about $7,000 on their own. And they're like, I think maybe in the remaining campaign, I think they had 30 something days left on their campaign. We might be able to get to $17,000, Zach. 
and that's what the numbers are looking like, and we have some things lined up, and that's what we think we'll be able to do. And we said, okay, and we took them on, and again, $7,000. They thought they'd get to 17000 We raised them 171000 and they've been able to leverage one success after another and keep coming back to crowdfunding, relying on their existing backers because of their positive track record of fulfillment and delivery and success and creating great products, of course. That's the most important thing, under-promising, over-delivering, all those things that you want to preach as a small business owner and entrepreneur. And they have probably one of the most successful brands and, and startup success stories in crowdfunding history. And they're only, they've only been alive for 18 months, I think. So, <laughs> Yeah, we're excited. Uh, they're they're going to come on the show together, actually. Um, oh, very nice. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, without giving away the secret sauce, um, when you say we help them come up with that money, I mean, it can feel a bit like a black box to the rest of us. In, in generalities, sure. can you help us understand what it is when somebody comes to you, what you do for them? Yeah, it's a three-tiered approach focusing first on tests of statistical significance. We look at p-values, we look at statistical significance, and over the first one to seven days of your campaign, we have what we call product validation during our due diligence. And product validation is essentially paid media. And paid media means we spend money wherever we can make money. So whether that's Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook, Pinterest, pretty much you name it, we're spending money to see if we can get a break-even or positive ROI. And then we're looking at the audiences that we're spending money, and we're seeing how far we can go with that. We're extrapolating or doing projections on that data. So you know, if there's a list of a million people we're targeting and we're getting a conversion rate of 5%, we can extrapolate the numbers from there and kind of project, oh, okay, based upon that audience and this thing here, this is what we think we can do for you. And we're able to make pretty accurate projections, accurate in the sense probably within $20,000 generally of where we think we're going to go. Once we have proven a campaign successful, we're able to continue on, and they pass the due diligence. Now, con if, if they aren't successful during that same due diligence test period, we're able to report on them and talk about all the different audiences and things that we've tried across all the different paid media channels and say, here's why it isn't working, or here's some things we think we can pivot or tweak and change. And we're spending a lot of time during that one to seven days of product validation during our due diligence, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't work, and reporting and trying to stay active with the client to come together with something that will be able to be a successful race. Now, let's say you pass the due diligence during the paid media stage. Then you're opened up for the remaining two to three tiers of the Funded Today three-tiered marketing approach which are PR and outreach. We have a network pretty much of every single person that's ever written about crowdfunding, whether that's a journalist, big-time media like Digital Trends, Mashable, Huffington Post, CNET, Gizmag, TechCrunch, you name it. We've been featured in those publications, and we have contacts at those places. And we personally reach out to them via email, Twitter, Facebook, wherever, with templates and tell them, look, this campaign has done pretty well. They had a goal of $10,000 in the first Five days, they raised $50,000, 500% of their goal. They're really successful, and here's a couple more reasons why you should write about it, and here's some things you've written about in the past that are similar, so we think this might be up your alley. Are you interested in writing about it? And we hand-select and handcraft and curate these people, and we get them to write for us. The Simultaneous to that tier two, we have a network, and we call that our ABC D-list celebrities in addition to our cashback. And these are people that are influencers, like, for example, George Takai, he posted for the Evolution Bra, and it raised, I think, more than $100,000 just from one Facebook post. I could get you the exact number, but let's call it that because I remember it being pretty significant. Um, Tiffany Albert, a, a really famous uh, 
YouTuber who's one of the most famous non-signed singers in the world. People like that will post for our campaigns. Those are the type of celebrities we have access to, and we incentivize them, whether through products or because they like us now or they like what we're doing or we pay them, and they will post for your product. In addition to these ABCD celebrities, we have our own email list of Kickstarter and Indiegogo backers who have backed products in the past who are looking to back more projects. They just are on our email list. And then we also have an email list of people who back projects because they want to get a discount. Similar to people who use an American Express card because it gets cash back, we have an American Express type program with our cash back at Funded Today where people can earn cash back when they buy or refer other people to buy on any product that Funded Today works with in our Kickstarter Indiegogo product. When you combine all of those tiers together, it provides for a pretty powerful engine to raise a lot of money on crowdfunding, literally such that we're raising $100,000 or more per day at this point across all of our campaigns. That's great. Um, so let's talk, let's talk uh, about, you know, how, um, you know, we're going to get into some of your clients and specifics and, and contrasting, you know, sure. maybe it's not all one size fits all. These guys did it a bit this way. These guys did a bit this way. Um, but we talked uh, before the show about how, you know, it hasn't all been roses and puppies that, that the <laughs> entrepreneurship roller coaster has had some lows for you before. Um, can you, can you share, do you mind sharing that experience you were telling me about before the, of the gut wrenching parts of entrepreneurship? Yeah. So I talked about a company that I sold originally. I had been working with that company and I'd become a partner in that company. Probably had put in two, three years of time and we hadn't really ever made very much money. I, I think in total, maybe I'd made $30,000 across those three years. And is this the and consulting bit work? Th or? Th this is before the consulting company. Okay. This, is the, this is the first uh, digital marketing company that I had, that I started. Okay. And so across three years, $30,000 maybe or something. It, it, was, <laughs> okay. it, was in, it was insignificant. But I had this, I had seen what had happened because the partner that I was in business with had been successful before, really successful. And I kind of had that long-term vision and that hustle mindset and the idea that something's going to blow up. And it felt like something was going to blow up. And sure enough, it did. We All the ducks lined up. Everything was beautiful. And we made a million dollars, I think, within 24 hours or so, following like a Jeff Walker-style product launch for a software product that we developed. And our net profit on something like that was probably $500,000. And so suddenly, I was the heir to $250,000 because we were equity 50-50 partners in this venture. Well, unbeknownst to me, my business partner didn't see it that way, even though we had operating agreements and all kinds of paperwork to that extent. And I essentially lost out on $250,000, $260,000 that he decided to basically take the money and run and drain the bank account. And then he had a lot of debt, a really big house. And that's kind of how he had led me on to, to want to work with him originally because it looked like he was really successful. But it turned out he was more a glass house of success. And so, And were you – did you have a family already at this time or was it just you? So that was his argument. You're young. You're an entrepreneur. You don't have any kids. You're not married. He was a couple years older than me. He had like three or four kids, so at the time, and <laughs> so I need the, I need the money more. I need the money more than you. It's like, e no, that's not really how it works. But so I fought him. We uh, it never went to court, but I eventually did get a settlement. It wasn't for anything close to that amount, and I could probably still try to collect on it, given the statute of limitations and things like that. But fortunately, in terms of the success and things that Funded Today has had in my consulting business previous to that, because after that, I took the knowledge that I learned and eventually did get a buyout from that company. I took the knowledge that I learned from that company and started a consulting company, and that led to our first client on 
on crowdfunding before Funded Today was even Funded Today, and then that led to client after client after client, and suddenly the $250,000, $260,000 that my business partner had basically stolen from me became a negligible amount, and I wrote it off as a business expense, essentially a learning, a learning expense because Funded Today I've really been so blessed with. Yeah, no, I I get that. I remember um so we I'm not made, even bad anymore. <laughs> we had made a, an investment in the energy space and uh you know, we'd given this guy about 3 million bucks and I remember when the day we found out that in the offering materials, you know, the stuff that he had been showing us to get the investment out of our fund um that he had photoshopped the the monthly revenue number to add a zero in. And that he was making five thousand a month instead of fifty thousand a month. <laughs> Jeez. And uh, you know the engineers that we had hired to do the due diligence. Um, you know we thought that we were looking for inconsistencies, and it mm-hmm. just we, you know, we didn't, you know, we weren't, we just didn't have the suspicion of out and out fraud, you know. And mm-hmm. so uh, he was sneaky enough to get it past us and get the money in, get the money spent, and. Uh, he, you know, he ended up, uh, spending some time behind bars and we, we took over the company and found out about the, you know, spending money on, <laughs> he taking, you know, taking money out of the corporate bank account, like it was his personal bank account and, you know, buying motorcycles and stuff for the bar that he owned. <laughs> right. And, uh, so like, I, I know that feeling a bit, I think, uh, what was that gut check like for you? Like, what do you, do you remember? <clears throat> That feeling. I remember life. logging. I remember logging into the bank account and seeing it at like five hundred dollars when it was at like eight hundred thousand or something because we still had bills and expenses to pay too. And I was like, "Oh no, what happened here?" And I saw that the transfer was made like right to his account. And you're like, everything I did, it finally was successful. And you're almost like, "Wow!" I mean, that that would have been a lot of money for me at the time. Sure, you know, life changing in a way. And suddenly it's gone and you're like oh no that was like three years of my life maybe he just made a mistake no he wouldn't make a mistake like that you know you start trying to wonder because you thought the guy would be honest too it's a pretty terrible horrible feeling and you yeah, don't really especially know especially somebody you, really you spend so much do. time with right oh yeah i mean i had i learned something actually pretty powerful from that experience and i still kind of believe it today maybe it's maybe i'm more a pessimist i consider myself more a realist but it's basically and, and uh, the old CEO of GoDaddy used to say it as well, but in business as in life, the only thing that's fair is what you pay when you get on a bus, your bus fare. <laughs> so it, it, was, it was something I uh, kind of took to heart. And then the other thing is business is business. So as much as you think you're friends with business people and maybe you have a personal life with them, when it comes to business, treat it like a business. And when it comes to personal, treat it personal. And it's okay to mix business and personal. I think it's great. I'm friends with a lot of our people at Funded Today, but I treat them as an employee or I treat them as a contractor. I treat them as a team member of Funded Today when we're working business, and I don't mix the personal and pleasure and business sides of things because I want them to understand the professional side and the personal side because I think it was so blurred in the case where I got screwed out of a lot of money by a past business partner that I was so much like, how could somebody do that to me? When to him, it was strictly business. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. I do some CEO coaching and uh, especially, you know, for for so many people, they they get may, ra- maybe raised in a different background. And I mean, there's the rare cases of out and out fraud, 
right? Or, or straight theft. But so often the collapse in my experience has to do with misunderstandings and, and the nature that everybody is excited to be partners and, and very willing to talk about splitting things up before the money's in the account. And then once the dollars roll in, you know, emotions get really high and people misremember previous conversations. And there's like that classic, classic issue of people talked and they think they agreed, but they didn't put it in writing. Mm. And now the money showed up and everybody has all sorts of emotions. And then somebody's spouse has emotions. Oh, and- geez. Let's not get into the, spou- the, spou- the spouse thing in this instance, I honestly think is what corrupted an otherwise good person. It's, it's tough, right? And um, oh, yeah. just a classic, like, no, they're a good person. They would never do that. Mm-hmm. It completely discounts that humans in general, like we don't have great recall. I mean, you can talk <laughs> in the, you know, we had a, we had the head of the Kansas City SWAT team on the show, you know, mm-hmm. and time I spent with him and some other guys, uh, some of his friends, specifically the guy named Jack, uh, mm-hmm. Jack Caldwell talking to me about the unreliability of eyewitnesses. <laughs> and like, <laughs> that's for something that happened last week. What about when the agreement was two years ago or three years oh, ago? Yeah. And I love that. There's all this time for the emotions to change the memory and the... And, well, there's extenuating circumstances that have changed since then. Yeah, but this is what our agreement was then. When if people would just put it in writing with signatures, have a, you know, have a legal document. Oh, for um, sure, yeah. It's great to do that. And even if you think you're friends, and even if you're one of those Larry H. Miller guys who does everything by a handshake, I don't necessarily know if I believe that. And maybe that happened then, but nowadays it's so easy to put together an operating agreement and put together some structure and talk over things. And because I've had experiences with you know good and bad i'm able to relay those stories to future business partners and current business partners and say look let's not let that happen and then they know that's not going to happen because we've talked about it i love what you said though humans don't have great recall i have a similar phrase that i learned from a therapist actually and it goes like this perspective is a private experience so what you believe (laughs) is real what i believe is real and the truth lies somewhere in the middle yeah if you understand that you don't get as angry when someone doesn't see things exactly the way you do like, you know, it doesn't hurt. Let's say you are the handshake kind of guy. It does not hurt to put together a two-page letter agreement so that it's in black and white. Everybody signed it. There's no, well, I don't remember it going that way, right? <laughs> yep, for sure. Um, and that's what was too bad about this deal with this business partner. We had all that in writing. He decided he wanted to not do it. And then he kind of had like a change of heart. Well, maybe I'll give you 25% or something, you know, and he wanted to just keep changing things based upon what he thought but the point is if you want to change things and i've always done this with business if i'm ever disappointed with somebody i was disappointed with a partner i still paid him and then i said look here's how i see things going going forward otherwise i'm going to buy you out or i'm going to do this or that i don't you don't screw somebody once the money starts coming in you discuss those things before and if an influx of money comes in and you're not happy about it you pay your partner based upon what your operating agreement says and then you restructure a deal after that you don't play the Monday morning quarterback and change things up once success has started to hit. At least that's how I would operate business if I was ever a business partner with someone. Well, and there's there's the other things too about, you know, I think it's pretty hard when you when you know the statistics of how few businesses make it to five years or how many businesses mm-hmm. make it to 10 years, right? Oh, yeah. It's pretty hard to get into the world of entrepreneurship without being an optimist. 
Like there's just, <laughs> there's not too many, right? Yep. Not too oh, many sure. Eeyores like, looking at those stats <laughs> and going, I'm going to do this, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but where that can turn out to be a negative is on financial controls. I mean, how many of us have, you know, dual signatures needed on checks that go out from the company or, you know, those, you know, maybe a bit more of Eeyore type of mindset things, but really when you're being responsible for the jobs of the people you employ and, and everyone that depends on this, you know, business continuing those things like financial controls and even, even, you know, digital security <laughs> so that the money can't get hacked and stolen. Oh, or, for sure. You know yeah. I mean? like, these kind of things that, you Sometimes know, I wish more banks had approval of both partners for transfers because now in the digital economy that we live, you can just push a button and transfer money. It'd be awesome if they kind of had some dual controls on something like that. Thomas and I have a policy where we both talk about it and we've always followed it, but technically either one of us could just transfer the money without telling the other person, just like happened in, in a previous instances. It's funny how much, to me, partnerships are like marriages. You know, I'm always encouraging uh, people like after, oh yeah. <laughs> after two different two-person failed partnerships, I'm like such a <laughs> one, three or more kind of guy, you know? Yeah. And it's just like, it's so unlikely for two people to see things exactly the same all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, so having a tiebreaker can be so helpful. And, and if not, I mean, you just have to have an epic relationship for people to be able to care more about the friendship than the money and to be able to work through it. And, you know, I'm telling you, they've got couples therapy. They might need to have business partner therapy. That might be, that might be a whole new industry that could be lucrative. So <laughs> no kidding. Well, uh, let's talk about something happier for a minute. Uh, All right. So the, the trunkster, tell us about what a trunkster is and at what point they came to you and, and at what point they went to shark tank and yeah. So trunkster was one of our clients that, uh, came to us after raising a little bit of money on their own. And they wanted us to run with their. They ran a 60-day campaign, if my memory serves me, and they wanted us to run with them for the remaining 30 days. And that, there's actually a testimonial on our website. If you want to go to our website, you can go to funded.today, and if you scroll, we'll put a link to it. We'll put a link to it. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Um, anybody who wants to see this, and it's a cool picture, anyways. Maybe maybe you should describe what the product is for people. Yeah. So Trunkster is, they they say luggage reimagined. And basically, it has zipperless entry, location tracking, USB charging, and a digital scale built into it. And it's really cool looking, too. It kind of um, – it has those rip zippers. Um, it's got a sliding roll-top door. So drop-resistant, water-resistant, impact-resistant, just all kinds of amazing features. Basically, we call it techie or innovative. Our, our, our formula for, suce- for success on crowdfunding is um, ubiquity plus techie, or we call it innovative, plus compelling chill factor story, plus awesome product equals huge chance for success. So awesome product kind of goes with techie and ubiquitous. Everybody has luggage because everybody travels, so that fits the ubiquitous criteria. Can we slow down for that? You yeah. know, I feel like there's so much in the business literature these days about you need to, you need to find your niche and own I it, know, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. and, and the context is left out of like, yeah, but if that niche isn't a highly profitable one within something probably larger, mm-hmm. like even if you get a huge portion of that market share, if that's not a very big market share, you don't have a very big company. <laughs> so I love that. Yeah. Sometimes right? what I say runs counterintuitive. When I say ubiquitous, they're, wait, that's not niche. That's not niche specific, whatever. Well, it kind of is because 
the way you get niche is you add innovative or techie to something ubiquitous. So a great example, cool is cooler. What is it? It's a cooler, but what did they do? They made it techie or innovative by adding in Bluetooth speakers, by adding in a way to filter out the water from the ice so you don't have all the, the nasty stuff on your food. They added in a blender. I mean, the dang thing had all kinds of crazy stuff. Look at the paper airplane that did really well. It's just a typical paper airplane. Everybody throws a paper airplane around, but what did they do? They made it remote controlled. Um, what's another great example? Well, obviously Trunkster, right? It's a yeah. it's luggage. How much do so, I love the USB port right off the top for charging the phone? Because mm. uh, like I'm an audiobook addict, right? And uh-huh. the worst is you'd have been listening to this audiobook, you're a connection later, maybe you're on a different continent, or you're you've been, you know, you went to the airport early in the morning, it's now mid-afternoon, you're still not where you're trying to get to. And a client calls and you start mm. talking to them and all of a sudden you're like, oh, oh, we're out of juice. We're, we're about to die here, <laughs> right? And you're, <laughs> yep. like, you're like, this is such an important call. I cannot lose this person mid-sentence <laughs> mid of them, right? <laughs> yep. um, and for me, that's when I started carrying around those, you know, like an anchor, like a charger, whatever, right? But mm-hmm. being able to have that right off the top of the actual luggage that's sitting at my knee, like, <laughs> by the way, is this oh, thing yeah. available yet? I saw on, it's on pre-order. Um, is that one out yet? Um, June 2016 is when it should be shipping. So pretty much what do you got a month left is all. <laughs> and how, how much do I love the roller top? Like when you put stuff in the overhead bin and you're like, oh, I want to go get out my whole laptop and these other things. And you're like, oh, crap, the bin doesn't open enough to to zip and pull out right oh yeah it's awesome i'm excited for all these we when it comes to smart luggage funded today's raised more money for more products than anybody else we did barracuda we did trunkster we did space case we did go bag go bag already shipped actually i have a go bag in my office right now um those are just a few that that oh actually we're working with uh oh what is it called floaty we're working with floaty right now on kickstarter so there's so many awesome. What's Floaty? Floaty, I can give you. We can link to that in the comments yeah, yeah. as well. But Floaty is the world's first super suitcase, is how they're branding themselves. Um, it's got a smart handle, suspension ride. I'm trying to think of some of the other fancy features it has. We've raised them four hundred fifty thousand dollars, and they've got about three days left. We'll put their video on your. Uh, we'll put their video on your page on Ideation Collective. Okay, great. To it or something. Their, some of their features are handbag docking, built-in scale. It's actually made of premium leather, protective packing system, anti-lost and baggage arrival alert, smart handle with touch control notification, suspension ride, ten-year warranty. So well, there's just so nice. many. They're just yeah. Last there's just so many there. really. <laughs> yeah, there's just so many smart luggage is that everybody kind of saw the original blue smart and then the. Uh, I think Trunkster was right after, and now everybody's trying to innovate and create something based upon what they see there. So there's so many different options now. Smart Luggage has become a product line in and of itself. Sure. So so let's talk Trunkster. Um, when you got a hold of them, uh, where were they in your you know your validation one two three? Like how much of that did you have to did you start right back at validation with them or what would you do? It's the same process that we do with uh, any single client, and that is our Product validation, due diligence stage, which the first one to seven days of any client, we are testing audiences of people using paid media to try to figure out if this product can convert or not. Basically, product validation. 
And we find that to be really powerful because during our product validation, we can figure out if something's going to raise hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars or perhaps isn't fit for crowdfunding or perhaps needs to have a couple pivots or tweaks done to it in order to succeed. And we've seen all three instances many times. So with Trunkster, it was the same thing. We ran our one to seven days of testing. And literally, I think within the first 48 hours on that campaign, we were able to see that it was going to be successful. So they passed the due diligence. And then for the remaining of the campaign, the duration of the campaign, we just scaled. And scaling is really simple. We look at our audiences. We're continually testing new audiences as well. So just because you pass the first stage of due diligence, that's what the audiences during our first round of product validation and due diligence. If those pass, we don't just suddenly say, okay, great, let's run those on autopilot, let's keep going. No, we continue to test new segments and reach broader and broader or more specific and more specific, both directions, to find more audiences and more people across the world who might be interested, whether that's country-specific, demographic, niche-specific, um, interest-specific, whatever it may be, we're testing out audiences, starting with something that we think is going to work. And how do we start with something that we think is going to work? Well, it's easy for us now because we've ran 500 campaigns and we've pretty much if you've seen it on Kickstarter, chances are we've ran it or seen something similar to it. We even had a joke in 2015 that if it was raising money on Kickstarter, more than $100,000, chances are Funded Today was the company behind the successful raise. That's how many campaigns we were successful for. And 2016 is also looking just as good as we move into May. That sure. being said, because we've ran like wallet campaigns, because we've ran watch, watches campaigns, because we've ran smart luggage campaigns. Um, you can be set up to do another it, one. Exactly. Yeah. There's just so many things we've done that there's nothing. I mean, we got done running. This one was interesting because we'd never done it before. The field skillet. It was probably the most popular project on Kickstarter last month. Everybody was buying. It's really awesome, actually. It, it was talked Good about. Good photography. Crowdfund. Yeah, it was talked about at the Utah Crowdfunding Conference. But it's really simple. It's just a it's just a skillet that you take with you out in the you know in the field. And we were really really successful with them, but we'd never ran anything similar to it. But we had ran a meat thermometer, and so a meat thermometer proved to be the right group of people that first got us on to thinking that we could be successful. And sure enough, we found audience after audience after audience that was also interested in this field skill. We were able to raise millions of dollars for this campaign. So, Yeah, so I'm, I'm just looking at fieldcompany.com, the link off, your, off of your site. Um, by the way, if you yeah. want to see all these campaigns – that Zach's talking about, uh, just click on his tab, get more pledges on funded.today. Um, so, uh, by the way, what was special about that one besides <laughs> good marketing here with a, you know, the thing looks cool. Yeah. The most special thing about that one is it had the highest earnings per view in recent memory. In fact, the camp earnings per view is a figure we look at that basically means for every single person that comes to the site, how much are we making on that? And I can't remember the exact number off my head, I could look it up. Let me, let me see if I can look it up, actually. You know, it's interesting. I'm just clicking around here um, about the involvement of 3D printing. I mean, we're really fascinated with any kind of exponential production. Um, sorry, exponential technologies where, you know, one person can leverage something. One organization can leverage something that can impact huge numbers around the world. Um, it, it's frankly our fascination with crowdfunding where you don't have to be a General Electric, you know, to do some big, crazy, high-impact thing that reaches out all across because you've got the spreadability of the Internet, but the financial engine of the crowdfunding, you know, it has... The, I just found a great report last night about the <clears> World <throat> Bank 
coming in and talking about the effects that crowdfunding could have on the developing world. No. Again, because there's such a high leverage point. If you pay the price, if you learn the skills, like, like frankly, the skills that you've learned, mm-hmm. you know, someone in Nigeria could be doing the same thing who maybe comes from an underprivileged background, right? Mm-hmm. No, I love that. I just found the numbers for the field skill. The earnings per view in some audiences was close to $5, $4.18 in some of our audiences. So that means for every single person that was coming to view the site, it was making $4.18. Extremely high. Usually, if that number is anything above uh, uh, seventy-five cents, we're doing pretty good. Say that one more time. You yeah, spent er- how much? Yeah. So, <clears throat> earnings per view is for every single time somebody comes and views the site. Another number you might have heard before is cost per click. Yeah. Cost per click's talked about a lot. So, but earnings per view is for every single visitor that hits the site based upon Google Analytics and the tracking that Kickstarter Indiegogo has. That's how much money you're making. So, if a thousand people view your site and they spend $10,000, then your earnings per view would be $10. Simple math, 10,000 yep. divided by 1,000. If it was 1,000 and 1,000, your earnings per view would be a dollar. So in this case, it was $4.18. So for every 1,000 wow. people that came, they were making $4,118. So That's incredible. Well, and it's a cool story with the 3D printed sand molding, you know, that they mm-hmm. used to pour these oh, yeah. things and stuff. Uh, I get the cool factor. Um, for sure. So how much advice are you guys involved in helping these guys make sure that they can deliver on their promises or like, do you get involved in, in advice for manufacturing or the back end or, or service or we have a lot of context now having ran so many campaigns. So if someone struggles in that arena, we have made a lot of connections with people, whether it's in the United States or China or Vietnam or Cambodia or really anywhere a lot of these people already have a lot of good plans coming forth. During our due diligence, one of the things we do before we even sign a client on is figure out if they're actually legit and they're going to ship it. Uh, knock on wood here, but every single Funded Today client we've worked with has plans to ship or has already shipped, which is what I love because if they don't ship, it kind of makes people sad that they've donated money for something and the, the creators couldn't get it figured out. So we like to make sure what we're working with is actually something that's going to come to market even better than it you know, than they describe in the Kickstarter. And we've seen that with a lot of our campaigns where it's even better than what they described in their Kickstarter pitch video. So sure. we abs- we absolutely want to make sure people can fulfill and, yeah, you know, live up to their promises. So um, before we leave Trunkster here, um, they, they get basically the $1.4 million raised. Did they go on Shark Tank after that or was it at the same time? What was the order of events yep. there? Yep, they went on Shark Tank after, and they leveraged their Kickstarter success to get the highest valuation in Shark Tank history. Wow, that's incredible. A lot of people do that. That's one of our pitches that we have at Funded Today. Even if you're not making money on your campaign, it's such a beautiful way to validate that you have a good business concept and then to leverage that success into something bigger, and that's what Drunkster did with their Shark Tank deal. Well, you think, you know, we're book nerds around here, right? And you think about... Mm -hmm. Um, book a lot of entrepreneurs have read the lean startup, Eric Ries, mm. and this idea of, of like figuring, like it doesn't do you any good to sit around and completely execute your plan. If the customer doesn't want it when you're done, right? <laughs> yep. Um, well let, let's talk for a second. Cause we've got Bryce coming on the show also. Why don't you, t- what's something different that you did like Trunkster versus Ravian? Well, the good, a, a great example is Trunkster was one of the clients we worked with over a year ago, and Ravion's one of our more recent clients. So just factor in what Funded Today is able 
to do network wise now before with Trunkster, we didn't have that big of a network. Now we probably have close to a million people as part of our network. So that allows us to do a lot more damage for mm-hmm. a campaign. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, obviously jackets have a high ubiquity factor, <laughs> right? Absolutely. What, yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us about the, the heated tech or what's the, what's the big deal about this one jacket yeah. for all seasons? Once again, that fits our formula. Everybody wears a jacket, but what did he do? He added a heating element into his jacket so that it could basically keep you warm. And he had all kinds of cool stuff for it. I remember him jumping into like a freezing pool. Like literally it was so cold. I, I can't imagine why the guy did it. Bryce is crazy, but he jumped into his pool and then he, and I think he was showing that it was water resistant. It wouldn't get damaged or something if I remember right. But then he was warming up right then, right in the middle of this, right in the middle of the winter. So that video was pretty cool. It had that shock and awe factor that probably got a lot of people thinking, wow, this thing's pretty legit. The other thing Bryce did that was amazing this guy shipped out, he underpromised and overdelivered better than anybody I've ever, the only person that ever did better than him was actually Kirill, the big skinny wallet guy. That guy was shipping out his wallets as people were backing. That's how prepared he was. Bryce shipped within the first, within two months, and I think he told people six months. So Bryce shipped four months earlier on his jacket, and everybody was super impressed. And that's why he's had a lot of great success asking people to help him again with his campaign that he has on Kickstarter right now. Because people are like, wow, he delivered, he shipped, it's a great product, let's trust him again. What what one's up right now? Um, I forget what it's called exactly, but it is a sleeping bag that has a heating element built into it, I believe. Okay. Um, you know what I like about Bryce too? So, you know, I'm looking at his I think he's funding on demand now on Indiegogo, right? Oh yeah. You've got he is with his yep. Uh is I mean, he hasn't gone for like the he hasn't got sucked into the like, oh, Kickstarter will raise the money for me. Right. Like, (laughs) like this has a legit marketing campaign where he doesn't just have the one video. He's got the electric jacket, electric jacket versus the pool. Right. He's Mm -hmm. got the video, the truck running over the jacket. And like he's (laughs) thinking through the like it, it, it gives you the feeling they've thought through what are all the reasons I wouldn't, you know, what are all the reasons I might doubt these camp, these claims. And he's not just telling you it's durable. He's having a truck run over it to show you. Right. Oh, yeah. Bryce was such a pleasure to work with. When it comes to like entrepreneurship <clears throat> as it relates to all the facets, financial, spreadsheets, manufacturing, fulfillment, marketing, ad copy, this guy kind of possesses all of them. It's pretty impressive. I'm like, where's his weakness at? <laughs> so he was, he was really nice to work with him because he was so quick to help us with anything that we needed so that we could amplify his efforts. He was actually already successful before he hired us. We just came on and helped amplify his already successful campaign. Uh, great product photography, obviously visual storytelling with the videos, right? Oh yeah. Um, okay. Um, I feel like we're, uh, kind of on a kick here. We may as well keep going. Let, let's talk about, uh, the everyday messenger bag. What, what, what was the story there? The everyday messenger bag is from a company called peak design and peak design, I believe is the most successful Kickstarter company in the history of crowdfunding. They've had, the P- we raised close to $5 million on Peter Daring's campaign, but the guy has – they've created like five or six campaigns, all of them, 17,000 backers, 9,000 backers, 8,000 backers, 3,000 backers, 2,500 – I mean all of them, million-dollar campaigns are pretty close to it. They've raised a ton of money on crowdfunding, and they keep coming back to it. I picture, I picture peak design the way I see basics in a year or two more. 
where they've just built an entire excited community of raving fans through Kickstarter that now anytime they launch something, they're guaranteed to make a million dollars and get that product validation, good or bad, right off the bat. Well, so and that's, I, that's the story of Peak Design. I feel like something you talked about in, in one of your speeches is worth bringing up here about you know, why, why would somebody want to do this on a crowdfunding campaign, you know, possibly with help from, from guys like you versus why not just ma- manufacture the thing and put it up on Amazon, right? Mm. Yeah. And, and do you want to talk about just the psychology of the type of buyer and the forgiving nature and the early adopter type of culture that it's- Ah, yeah. That was actually at a speech I gave in Orlando, and it was a group of people that were really strong into Amazon. And I wanted to help them understand why it might be a good idea to go on crowdfunding and think about an Amazon review. Those are harsh. Those are intense. If you don't have something good on Amazon and you ship it, no one's going to be forgiving or nice. Compare and contrast that with a crowdfunding backer who is backing your idea, realizing full well it might not look like the pictures. It might not turn out just as great. And they're willing to give you feedback and be patient and help you and pay high price. Literally, you can charge a lot more on crowdfunding than maybe you'll even be able to get in retail because of – the disposable income of these innovators and early adopters. They're a lot more affluent, a lot more successful, I think, than your typical laggards and late adopters. And so I think the most, one of the most powerful reasons to consider crowdfunding, if you've already got capital, if you've already got resources, is to get that product validation and customer feedback in terms of how to pivot and adopt. Basics does this even better. They don't ever even ship a bad product. Their products are amazing. And why? Because they'll send out statistically significant sample sizes to backers. So, you know, whatever that number is, and they'll say, tell us what you like, tell us what you don't like. And then they'll, they'll send them what they'll send them products because they're really good at prototyping, getting things out. They'll get those products back, make all the changes and edits that the people, that the people want, and then ship out an amazing product to the 10,000 other people. And they're always pivoting and adopting and listening to their backers on the fly. You can't do that when you're on Amazon. You can't do that when you're actually shipping and running your e-commerce site. Yeah, you know, for anybody who isn't familiar with some of that terminology, there's a great book called Crossing the Chasm Mm, that I feel like, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. I, I feel like it does a great job of like helping not just define those different mindsets, but I, I don't know, I felt sold. I read that book and I really felt like, oh yeah, I can see those different sectors, you know, even in my own friends of like, knowing who's the guy that wants to be the first one to tell you, hey, I just got this thing no one's ever got before, who's willing to put up with the hiccups and parts of it not working to be the first one to have something awesome versus some of my friends that are more the cautious guys that are, you know, they, they want to know it works and they're not willing to spend money on something that isn't 100% proven and every bug and kink has worked out, right? And, and helping understand, you know, how to target the first one and then how to transition to the next the next group with the bigger and bigger dollars involved. Um, well, uh, let, let's switch gears for just a second. Thinking about rookie mistakes, you know, there's a lot of people who, um, you know, frankly, because they hear numbers like you guys helping raise $54 million are thinking, wow, this seems easier than begging venture capitalists for money to get started. <laughs> right. Uh huh. Tell us about some of the rookie mistakes that you see out there when, like the kind of folks who, who can't pass your validation or the kind of folks that, that maybe aren't quite ready for a firm like you, um, what, are, what are common mistakes that people uh, that you see out there? For the most part, lack of preparation is huge. What I like to see somebody do 
when they come to us is to be a shooting star. We have something called the crowdfunding success matrix, and the crowdfunding success matrix is basically like those business matrixes that you see in in uh, grad school or in business school, where you have uh, on our on our matrix on the left hand side you have your product and it's bad or good, and on the right hand side you have your marketing and it's good or bad. I like to see shooting stars and meteor showers. Shooting stars are products that start off with a promising start. So promising start might mean you have 100 or 200 or 300 or 400 to 500 your friends, family, and fools. We call it the triple F, backing your product. And because of those people backing your product, you get a little bump in Kickstarter. Kickstarter or Indiegogo shows your product to more people because you've influenced their algorithm for popularity or Indiegogo's Gogo factor. And now your product's getting shown to more people. And for a couple days, you're getting some organic love from the platform itself, which is what everybody dreams of with, with crowdfunding. Five years ago, you could put your project on Kickstarter or Indiegogo, and you could raise a lot of money doing nothing. I know because I have a friend. Um, his name's Ryan Crabtree. He invented the Krabby Wallet, and he literally to this day will tell you he didn't really do anything on his first campaign. Compare and contrast that to his second campaign where he ran some socks, really nice-looking socks, really well done, really, really well manufactured. He hardly raised any money on that second raise at least comparatively speaking to the 325 or $320,000 that he raised for his uh, Krabby Wallet the first time around. Nowadays, you can't just put your project on a crowdfunding website and expect to raise money. In fact, you might not even raise a dollar if you try that strategy. So that's the difference. So shooting stars and meteor showers, why do we like those? Well, that shows that you had fleeting success. That showed that people wanted it. So it shows you had a good product. You just had bad marketing or maybe good marketing for a little bit, but the bad marketing didn't last. It wasn't consistent. We can take campaigns like that and turn them into what we call supernovas, which are good products and good marketing. And that's where we can create those lasting results that act as a catalyst to birth new companies. Yeah. Well, and we, so we've got a series coming out um, about specifically that catapulting and, and how do you get the money to grow a company and actually pay for your manufacturing and stuff like this. Mm. And we're, it's one of the reasons that we're excited for, to, to have more crowdfunding folks like yourself and Jacob and Bryce and, and Joseph on the show. Um, so thinking about that catapulting. So, you know, obviously we've talked about Trunkster. They raise 1.4 million uh, with, with the help of you guys and then go on to get a $28 million valuation on Shark Tank. Um, but let's talk about somebody else. Um, uh, let's talk about Better Back. And, and it sounds like they had, you know, it was a kind of similar type of formula with, with um, Shark Tank. Yeah, Better Back's story was interesting. She came to us. We actually were with her right from the beginning, and then she didn't hire us because she had something amazing happen. She was literally the only instance I can remember since I've been in crowdfunding where her campaign did exactly what I said doesn't happen. She put her project on, and it was really, really successful. Granted, she did a lot of good stuff on her own. She had press lined up. She had all kinds of connections and networking in the in the Bay Area, and her campaign just kept making money. If we look at KickTrack, which is a website um, that tracks project growth, I'm just going to pull hers up and tell you what it did. Okay. It looks K- like I, yeah, one K- point. I'm on, on the Indiegogo. The, uh, I'm just looking at that. You're uh, funded today on Indiegogo, the different campaigns. Oh, yeah. And it's so showing $1.8 million. Yeah, so... Yeah, we helped her raise um, the $1.8 million on Indiegogo, but on Kickstarter, she raised $1.193 million. The very first day she launched, $26,000. The second day, $27,000, $25,000, $24,000, 17000 18000 15000 19000 12000 11000 13000 14000 11000 16000 
22, 22, 20. Her campaign consistently raised $20,000 every single day, which was very impressive. Normally, a campaign won't do this, but her product was so sought after. I mean, she had 16,459 people back her product. Yeah. So, and that's just either backing one or more better back. So, it was a campaign that was really, really successful. And rather than Funded Today raising her tons of money, Funded Today came on and amplified those efforts. And you see, toward the end of her campaign, we're raising 41,000, 42,000, 58,000, 37,000, 32,000, 39,000, 38,000, 43,000, 62,000, 61,000 every single day. So, some, so, sometimes three or four Xing what she was doing on her own. <laughs> sure. So there's a lot of things to try to make a chair ergonomic. Like you've got one of these. Didn't you tell me you have one of these in your office right now? Uh-huh. Yep. What, what do you think is special about, you know, from an inventor perspective, leave the business side alone, like just from a, hey, this answers what people are looking for type of perspective. Like wh- when you look at that product, what do you feel like are some of the elements of it? Let's just talk about what Mark Cuban and Lori Greiner said when she was on Shark Tank. Okay. They, they were like, this is... This is absolutely perfect for an infomercial because you put it on and you're immediately like, oh, wow, I feel so great. And in her video, she did such a great job of having five to ten people try it on and just act so surprised. It felt real, and it probably was real because when I put it on, I was the same way. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is awesome. I love this thing. That's what I think makes her product so great is it bodes so well through video cells in terms of, wow, look at this thing. You try it on, it feels great. You suddenly feel better. You feel in control. Your back feels less stressful. And then her story is so compelling. She had, um, I forget what it was. Um, You'd have to watch her video, but it was MS or something like that where she had some issues herself, but it led her to look to help with some back problems. and, And then she invented better back and it's helped her out ever since. And Literally everybody who tries this thing on it just it, it's amazing. I wear it every day and you only have to wear it fifteen minutes a day and I'm sitting here pitching this product and selling this product to you, even though I have no need to, just because it's such a great product yeah. and it's so amazing, you know. Well but isn't that such a great recipe to think about for um entrepreneurs anyway of solving a problem that you have? Oh yeah. yeah. It, like and versus- I, I used to say like have a I used to say like have a great story, or I used to say tell a great story create a great story. Now I cross that out and I made it have a great story. Anytime I give a presentation, I say have. You can't make it up. Some people will fabricate it. Some people do it and it'll do okay and you might raise some money. But if you actually have a real story like Catherine's or like some of the other people that we've worked with, you're going to see a much greater success and people are going to resonate with you at a core level. One of the one of the stories I love more than anything, and I always tell this one, is um, a watch campaign that we raised. It was going to be the most successful campaign for traditional watches, and it, it even was for a time, this thing was raising tons of money. Like, it was going to raise $100,000 a day for a while, and we still raised them quite a bit of money. But the, the slogan was really simple. This was our ad copy that we used. 73-year-old watchmaker passes on legacy of watchmaking to grandchildren. <laughs> now, now everybody that loves these watches don't necessarily just love the watches. They love the watches because they love the story. And that's what you've got to do with crowdfunding, and that's what creates that impact that makes everybody get behind your brand and to create that huge what we call crowd coup which is an overtaking of the crowdfunding market and virality and all the good stuff you hear about yeah um hey tell us about crowdcon yeah crowdcon is going to be a conference where we bring together the best and brightest of our team at funded today 
and how we've raised our $54 million and counting, and then all of the creators that we've worked with. We have literally almost every single creator who has raised a million dollars or more speaking at this event, and they're going to talk about what they did, how they did it, literally from napkin stage all the way to, wow, I just got a $28 million valuation on Shark Tank, and it's only been 12 months since I started. We want to bring all those pieces together and help people realize that entrepreneurship because of crowdfunding is not as hard and complex and intense and scary as you might think. We want to make more people entrepreneurial or entrepreneurs. And and if people sign up now, they can get the free early bird access, right? Yeah, that's right. People can sign up for CrowdCon. Just go to crowdcon.com and you can sign up and get more information. We're asking everybody to list two or three things that they want to learn about. And based, we've already had thousands of of uh, input on what that is. And so all of the topics that people are going to speak about will be curated to what people are saying they want to learn about as well. Bringing that experience from their successful crowdfunding raises and bringing the experience that Funded Today bring, brings with Thomas Alvord, my co-founder. Um, I'll be speaking, of course, on a couple different topics and should be pretty exciting. In terms of the dates, it's still kind of up in the air. We're hoping for mid to late third quarter of this year though. And it's all gonna be digital too. For the first time around, you're going to be able to watch it from the convenience of your laptop. We'll record all the sessions. They'll be available in like a back-end membership site. So it should be pretty cool. And yeah. it's going to be really affordable too. It's not going to cost thousands of dollars, even though we probably should charge thousands of dollars. We're talking probably a couple hundred bucks for probably eight hours or more of content and training from the best and brightest people. And you guys are kind of tentatively targeting September at this point. That's right. Very cool. Well, uh, hopefully we hear more about that. Uh, maybe have yeah, you back absolutely. on the show or somebody on back on the show between now and then and keep Would talking about it. Um, okay. Um, let's talk about, uh, well, uh, be- before we finish off there with better back, um, I think, you know, something for n- not everybody realizes what a huge <laughs> thing this can be, but, um, talk about, you know, the value for especially a product like this of, not not just you know your 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 million plus on Kickstarter and you're getting backed by Shark Tank, but getting a QVC deal and what that will likely mean for her long term. You know, I have seen retail deals, I've seen Walmart deals. I've actually not seen how a QVC deal will play out for a client. So I'm interested to see what Catherine says happens. But based upon everything that we saw on how well it did on Kickstarter and the demographic and the market that QVC has, I imagine she'll make millions of dollars in just the few hours that she'll be on the show. Which, how easy is it for QVC to want her, right? Oh, Based yeah. Based I mean, on the, this the previous traction. She had the most amazing thing happen on Shark Tank. If you go and watch the episode, I think every single person wanted her. <laughs> <laughs> so that's never a bad thing. And she was able to, I think she came in not having to do the traditional deal where they take a bunch of your company. She didn't hardly give up anything to get the deal. Wow. Like she got a loan from QVC because she's going to have to have, she's going to have to have like thousands of products on hand, obviously. So that that's going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I don't even know why she did the deal. I mean, I probably shouldn't say that because she has, she has tons of money because of the money she raised on crowdfunding. She has great margin. She built this product. This is an entrepreneur's dream product, great margins, high quality product. Everybody wants it. And she doesn't need outside investment. She probably did the shark tank deal. And again, I don't, exactly. I think that's why she did it. And then she got the QVC thing and she lined up something with uh, Lori Griner that didn't necessarily hurt her, her equity in a way that matters too much. And I think it's more just like, this is easier 
to do it this way than it is for me to go about doing it through all the traditional channels. So why not give up a little bit of equity? And who knows if that deal actually goes through or not? Because you know how a lot of those Shark Tank deals, they don't go through where they negotiate something on the back end that we never hear about. For all we know, she might negotiate harder on the back end once she's off TV. I don't know. Yeah. There is like a major validation though. You know, we had... We had Pat Crowley from Chapul who got money from Mark Cuban. And we've, you know, we've had these different people with Shark Tank stuff on our show. And it is, it's a data point. You know, so often people are trying to figure out, are you a real entrepreneur? Should I do business with you? And if you've had press in major media publications, if you've been on a, on a national television show like that, these are data points that can help the rest of your business, right? Uh-huh. So um, let's talk about the travel jacket. So the Travel Jacket is the fourth most successful campaign in Kickstarter history, raised close to $9.2 million. It's an interesting story because he hired us after he'd already raised $4 million or so. We'd been talking with him pretty much throughout his campaign, consulting with him actually, but he hired us on full-time when he'd already raised millions of dollars and he had several weeks left in his campaign. The interesting thing about his story is he was spending a lot of money. He told me he spent, I think, $160,000. I used to tell people it was $60,000, but he's like, no, I actually spent $160,000. And guess how much money he raised? $160,000. Basically, for every dollar he was spending, he was only raising a dollar. It's because he didn't really have a good tracking system in place. And that's one thing a lot of people don't know how to do because it's hard. There isn't really a great tracking system built in for calculating your paid media spend and your ROI and things like that. And that's where Funded Today has built out an immaculate back-end dashboard and tracking system that allows for us to really dial in to the penny in terms of ROI and ad spend and calculating return on investment and earnings per view and all those good things that we look at on a daily basis. Well, for him, it was pretty shocking because we were on a call with him and we watched him immediately turn off his ad spend after we told him, look, you're actually, it was funny to see it happen. Like literally you and I are talking right now, Jess, he went on and he turned off all of his ad spend across all of his paid media channels because he kind of had that sad, sickening awakening. Oh my gosh, I've spent 160 and it's not as good as I thought it was. Because mm-hmm. here's the deal. He, here's the deal. He was raising a lot of money, but it wasn't because of his paid media spend. It was because of all the press and traction of his crowd coup, all the other things he had going on. But his ad spend for his paid media was terrible. Well, he hired us, and the rest was history. We were able to convert at a really great rate for him, even though we didn't think it would work because we saw how terrible he had been doing, and we thought, wow, if he's doing that, <laughs> if he's doing that terrible, I mean, he's a pretty smart guy. It's not like Haral was a, a dumb businessman. He's one of the sharpest guys you'll ever meet. But... Uh, He was not good at paid media, and we learned that really quickly. And again, I think within just the first couple days, we realized just how powerful his campaign was and how well we could do. And we scaled that thing exponentially, and the rest is history, and we raised him $9.2 million in total. But, you know, those feedback loops are amazing, right? Like, I think I really got interested in this, the the Ryan Holiday book, uh, Growth Uh, Hacker, right? uh And I started... You know, follow. You know, getting into other growth hacking books and growth hacker TV, and um, you know, I this book I'm a little obsessed with right now, um, eighty twenty marketing by Perry Marshall. Right, Read it. Talk, talks about eighty twenty marketing is Thomas Albert's favorite book, and it's eighty twenty has become one of my favorite principles now too. <laughs> he well, Thomas would love you. <laughs> it's not like a. It's not like it's like this foreign concept, but no. the way Perry like describes positive feedback loops, you like start realizing this huge leverage point that I'd kind of been discounting, you know? And it's like, <laughs> so the guy's, you know, Bobax, right? Cool jacket, has got a neck pillow and an eye mask and a passport pocket and a phone pocket and <laughs> gloves built in and all this stuff into the jacket, right? 
Um, but just being a cool jacket wasn't enough. They obviously needed that positive feedback loop to feed on itself and, and, you know, spin itself up like what you guys were able to do for him. Uh huh. Yep. <laughs> um, that's basically what it is. I mean, it's positive feedback loop after positive feedback loop, a little tweak here, a little change here, an adjustment there. And that's what you're, you're so much close. There's a really cool saying, and I, I could get the exact same, but basically you're so much closer to success than you think you are. But it's those leverage points, right? If you do, mm-hmm. if you do everything, you're not going to get nearly the kind of trajectory of just doing the high leverage point thing more times, right? Even if you end up ignoring stuff you probably should do, if you do the high leverage thing over and over, right? Uh huh. Um, well, listen, we always like to ask guests um, for for our charity, Child Rescue. We're trying to get out there and prevent child sex trafficking or the kids that are, are in it, get them out and get them aftercare. What kind of advice would you have for an organization like us that's trying to get out to the wider world helping kids? I think <clears throat> what you need to do in terms of, again, what exactly are you hoping to do here? Like, let's let's be specific in terms of what you want to see happen. Sure. It, um, it, I mean, we've got a few things, right? We're trying to shift the perspective so that this country stops seeing an underage willing participant and realizes that the 12 year olds and 14 year olds are there against their will, right? Like stop seeing an underage prostitute, start seeing a child sex trafficking victim. Um, we're trying to get programs funded for police trainings and undercover rescue missions and orphanages built. Uh, those are two of our biggest things. Okay. I think, And you want to, is it raising awareness? Is it raising money? Uh, For us, we want to shift the perspective. We want society and journalists and police to start seeing a victim instead of an underage criminal. And we want to raise the money to actually pay for police trainings. And and like the aftercare orphanage we're building, we're expanding in Peru right now. We we put the down payment down in December with a couple of partners. And now we're, we're moving forward to get people involved in building an extra building so we can help more of these trafficking victims, you know, actually overcome the PTSD and learn some, some life skills for, so they're not economically vulnerable. Okay. What I think you should do is I actually knew people that were in this instance, so it's kind of personal to me. Why not find people that are trying to just look up a a page here that I found for you, but why not look up people that have had that happen to them? Sure. Like my mother, my mother-in-law is a a sex trafficking survivor. It happened to her as a 12 year old in Santa Monica. So a lot of those people have networks and a lot of, and they have, you know, like everybody has 400, 500, maybe a thousand Facebook friends. When you start with those people, they kind of become your one and you have tons of ones that then can spread exponentially or virally to reach more and more people because people are like, oh, wow, that happened to her. I can't believe it. Sure, I'd love to give. Oh, wow, that happened to her. That happened to him. That happened to this guy. That happened to this girl. And if you have thousands of ones, you can raise millions of dollars because they can leverage their existing networks and together that network can become massive. I think that's the best way to go about it. Find find thousands more of people like your mother-in-law and have them leverage their existing networks to tell their story and to talk about how your organization is making this a real issue and bringing it to the forefront and providing a lot of value. You know, I agree. Uh, 
the personal story is the thing that motivates people more than anything when, mm-hmm. because it's such like a, like there's so much shaming with the issue and so many of the victims feel like, uh, you know, they've got self-worth issues, so they don't want to talk about it. And they've kind of accepted this lie that they're somehow to blame for what happened to them. And so it's interesting working on this cause the last six, seven years, how many friends of ours have said that happened to your family that happened in our family or that happened to someone mm. we know. I, I had no idea, like, because it's just not, it's something that stays in the dark. And so it doesn't get talked about enough. Right. Yeah, it seems like it's such a terrible, horrible thing, but really they're the victims here and there shouldn't be any shaming about it. It should be told and brought up and so that the the people that are the terrible perpetrators of it all can have justice served upon them, you know? So I think that's what we have to do. We have to change the issue from one of, oh, that's terrible, that's disgusting, that's whatever you want to call it, to, no, this is terrible and horrible, but look at these people. They live great lives, they're normal, and they survive through it, and they're helping other people realize you can get past these horrible, terrible things. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks for that. Um, any, any, I mean, I know we've talked about some books already, but any other book recommendations you'd have for innovators or entrepreneurs right now? You, re- you recommend some, some great ones. I love Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. I love 8020 by Perry Marshall. One of my favorite books I've read recently, uh, not recently, like a year ago, actually, I guess, um, was David and Goliath by Malcolm Gladwell. I almost love everything Malcolm Gladwell writes, but this one's great. It's not necessarily about your typical David and Goliath underdogs and giants in any conventional sense of those terms. Rather, it's about the curious nature of advantages and disadvantages and how um, each of them can, under cer- certain circumstances, become the exact opposite. It's fascinating to think that uh, David actually might have been the <laughs> um, is it overdog <laughs> <laughs> in the case of David and Goliath and Gladwell illustrates. There's a really good video if you just Google like TED Talk Malcolm Gladwell, David and Goliath. You you can watch it. It's fascinating how he talks about how David. Sure, he was a shepherd boy, but he was skilled in the sling. And Goliath might have actually been blind or had some giant's disease that he megal or something. I forget what it's called. Um, and how <laughs> the power of a sling had the stopping power of powerful rifles and just all how David was coming down the valley and Goliath was waiting for him with a sword and couldn't even see him maybe. And then he relates this across business and across, he talks about a basketball team once. And this basketball team is a bunch of girls that all they can do is get in really great shape and make layups. And they beat every single team for years. And all these athletic talented teams can't beat them because these guys have the best full court press around and everybody, (laughs) and all they can do is make layups and press and and move around and, and be active. And, he talks about how this strategy was used by Rick Pitino to make it all the way up to the highest ranks of the NCAA. And you look at all these cool things where it looks like someone's an underdog, but in reality, we just like to believe in underdogs and they might actually be the exception. It's a pretty you know, cool read. Okay. That sounds like a great one. We'll put the link to that. We'll put the link to the Ted talk. It makes me think a lot about the, um, the other Ryan holiday book, uh, obstacle is the way, mm. um, I feel like it was always so stupid when people said life hands you lemonades when, when life hands you lemons turn it into lemonade. I just thought it was so <laughs> dumb. I was like, so what I'm supposed to like the fact that this guy just stole money from us or whatever. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, or that, you know, I'm supposed to like the fact that I don't have a trust fund and don't have a rich uncle or whatever. And it just goes through and it sounds like a very similar theme of like observing your situation and like, you know, he talks about how Gandhi actually used his weakness against the British army to get everyone else to condemn the Brits for the way they were dominating India. 
right? Mm. And uh, and anyways, it took what I always thought was a dumb saying and actually made me want to <laughs> look for it. So thanks for David and Goliath. That's that's one of the Gladwells I haven't read yet, so that's going to go on my list. Um, and thanks for all your time today. This was this was great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It really uh, was an exciting interview. <laughs> Talked about a lot of things. Yeah. Well, listen, we, we're hoping for updates on CrowdCon and, uh, and let's stay in touch. I absolutely will do. Thanks again for having me. Okay. Bye. Bye. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, I'm Jay Farner, CEO of Quicken Loans. 30% of Americans who are planning home improvements of $5,000 or more will pay for those renovations with a high-interest credit card. That may not be a great idea. A better idea may be to take cash out of your home with a Quicken Loans 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. The rate today on our 30-year fixed-rate mortgage is 4.375%, APR 4.65%. Call us today at 800-QUICKEN or go to rocketmortgage.com. Rate subject to change. Pay 2.13% fee to receive this discounted rate. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender. License in all 50 states. NMLS number 33.